Absolutely thrilled and honored to have U.S. Secretary for Agriculture Sonny Perdue sitting down with former Secretary Tom Vilsack for a dialogue around food and water. Sonny Perdue came by his knowledge of agriculture the old-fashioned way. He was born into a farming family in Georgia. From childhood and through his life in business and elected office, Perdue has experienced the industry from every possible perspective. Uniquely qualified as a former farmer, agribusinessman, veterinarian, state legislator, and governor of Georgia, he became the 31st United States Secretary of Agriculture in April of 2017. We've met Secretary Vilsack several times throughout our symposium here, and today they will be discussing the financing and water projects together, food and agriculture, and how important that is to all of us. Please welcome both Secretary Vilsack and Secretary Purdue to the stage. Mr. Secretary, you must be a really important person. <laughs> and the reason I say that is that for the entire day and a half, speakers have wanted to sit in these chairs <laughs> as opposed to these uncomfortable chairs we had earlier. And because you are here, I get to sit in one of these comfortable chairs. <laughs> so I want to thank you. Uh, Anything I could do to help. <laughs> uh, Mr. Secretary, you, you have been a governor and as a governor of a, of a southern state, no doubt you have had challenges, even before you got this current job, with water issues. I think this, uh, uh, this group would be very interested in your, in your observations of your experience with drought, water, uh, as, the secret as, a, as the governor of Georgia at a time when you really suffered uh, some serious issues with water. Maybe you could start with uh, just a brief description of that experience. I'd be happy to, since I've... Uh long forgot the pain of that, but uh, we, uh, we're delighted to be here, Secretary Vilsack, and uh, obviously I think I heard some silent applause when the Vice Chancellor said that this is the last conversation of the day. But nonetheless, uh, I want to congratulate you for being involved in this. I want to congratulate Colorado State for calling attention to it and bringing people together. It's, a, it's an issue that will be with us forever, and there's no silver bullet, as we know, uh, many things that we can do. In Georgia, most people don't think of Georgia, or really the East as being uh, uh, a drought-tolerant, uh, uh, drought uh, state that uh, can happen to it. We get, in Georgia, an average of 52 inches of rain a year. It just doesn't always come evenly across that. Yet, in the period of time from 2007 to 2009 or 10, we were in a multi-year persistent drought where we got less than that, or really not that much less. It just came in uh, huge tranches and we had un, uh, limited storage capacity to, to hold that water. So we found ourselves really with some of the issues I know that you all are wrestling with, and that is the, the things that happen between municipalities, agriculture, recreationalist, endangered species, and all those things. 99% of the time, Georgia is fine, but then at 1%, it creates some pretty serious emotions and sometimes acrimony in how we 
divide that. I know the West, Colorado and the Colorado Basin, all the states here have to deal with that on a more ongoing basis and certainly from the future perspective of where do you grow? You know, agriculture, human population and those kind of challenges. So while we had a small part of that, I don't envy the issue here where you have to deal with that on a more persistent basis. But we, uh, we found ourselves with our primary drinking water for Atlanta, about four, four, between four and five million people, seriously low. And that's a zero tolerance effect of not having enough drinking water for a major municipality or even a smaller municipality. So I congratulate you all for the, uh, for the topic, for the attention. It is persistent. I think at one time in Georgia, we thought that rain and water was infinite. We've since learned that's not the case. It is a precious, finite resource, and I look forward to discussing with you how we can conserve, preserve, use more efficiently, and plan more productively. We, we'll get into the specifics of, of, of the water issues, but I, I, you mentioned the emotional uh, aspect of this, and I think it is important. One thing that's been not really discussed today or yesterday is the emotional stress that occurs when you have this division between rural and urban, when there is a, a, a serious issue with reference to water resources. You had to deal with that as a governor. You're now dealing with it in a number of different situations with Secretary of Agriculture. Just educate us a little bit about the importance of understanding that emotional stress and toll. Drought is probably one of the most uh, insidious, stressful, uh, occasions that I can think of. We all face disasters, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, and those are more episodic. They come and they're there for a period of time and they're gone. Drought affects people emotionally in a very different way. It is so insidious and it begins slowly. It creeps up on you. And many times by the time you're aware there's a problem, you have no idea when it's going to end. And emotionally that creates a different perspective, whether you're an agriculturalist or whether you're a municipal water management manager determining how your city and community is going to water its citizens there in the future. Obviously, environmentalists and uh, recreationalists and, and uh, water people who love the, the streams flow are all stressed by that. When is it going to rain? I've, uh, I remember having been asked that so many times uh, and no one knows. That's the that's the stressful part of it. You have no idea when the drought will break and when you're in a persistent area, in a more arid area, those things come more frequently, but it's just as stressful insidiously unlike most other disasters that I'm familiar with. You know, the Colorado Water Plan was put together after a, an incredible collaborative process here in Colorado and identifying the challenges in the future in terms of water availability. and. Essentially, it's, it determined that in the next 20 to 30 years, this state is going to have to identify a million acre foot of water uh, that it doesn't currently have, either by conservation or reuse, or it will be faced with a dilemma of not having water for agriculture or for growing cities. So in that context, uh, I'm interested in your take and your advice to us as to how we can elevate the understanding of the challenge we face. When there's a drought, it's immediate. You know that there's a problem. This is, this is scarcity of water, but it's going to develop over a longer period of time, but just as severe and just as serious. How, how can we elevate the importance of this in the eyes of public officials and in the public? It's a great question. 
of an interesting story I didn't tell you. When we were in the last throes of that drought, I went to visit a a colleague of yours and a Colorado, and we all know, uh, Secretary of then Interior, Ken Salazar. And I said, Secretary Salazar, I understand you've dealt with this in Colorado for a number of years. I think he was Attorney General when you all first did the first compact there. And I said, help us between Georgia, Alabama, and Florida to figure this out in the Southeast. Uh, He didn't have any silver bullets for me either at that (laughs) point in time. But nonetheless, I did seek his advice. But uh, it's really interesting. These things help here. Uh, Obviously, water usage is almost like our first responders. Uh, We don't think much about 911 day in and day out until we need it. And that's the way water is. When we're comfortable, we take these things for granted. In fact, in so many ways, as secretary, you know, we're so blessed and so productive in this country, we take many things for granted. But water is, uh, you, you have to go undergo a serious compelling, and then we forget those lessons very quickly as well. We were, we were limiting water on brushing teeth, cutting off there, we, you know, two minute showers, those kind of, we had a lot of citizen input to do those kind of things while, that's, while it's undergoing, and then you go back into bad habits later on. How do we get a permanent understanding of this planning? It takes many events like this, I think on an ongoing basis. We can't just meet when there is a, a, a potential for a drought or we're in the midst of that. We've got a plan, and the, uh, the group here at Colorado State that you're affiliated with, the planners, all the groups that are associated, the, uh, the many people who are here, it's going to take an ongoing conversation of solutions. And uh, obviously in agriculture, you know that uh, we've got producers. We're trying to educate and do a better job of water conservation, both for cover crops, both for no-till, and just for soil science. Keep, keeping that organic matter there where the rain can soak in and preserve as much as we can so it's not used or needed later on through irrigation. So there are many, many things, but really... Someone, and I think the groups in this, this room who are vitally interested and know how important this, has to continue bringing up the conversation, not just when we are. And we have to acknowledge that the public at large is not going to be all that receptive when they're not strained and constrained by drought conditions. That's a good point. I think that makes the point for why it makes sense for the Colorado State <clears throat> University to have the water center located here in Denver uh, and part of its responsibility will be the ongoing education of the public and even getting our, our, our children, uh, our young children, to understand better uh, the, the connection with water resources. You know, if you were to ask a child here in Colorado to identify with a mountain range, they, they wouldn't have any problem doing that at all. I'm not sure they have that same connection to their water resources, and, and that's one of the challenges. These folks are, uh, the water center is going to be developed to to create policy and research and so forth. And eventually they're going to have to come to a governor. They're going to have to come to a secretary. They're going to have to come to a mayor. And they're going to have to make a a pitch for money. You understand what I'm saying? Well, how well I do. Okay. Help us understand one of of the most effective ways of approaching someone in your position when you were a governor, someone in your position now as a secretary, give us a primer on, on how we should approach this because sometimes it just seems like you just don't know how to, how, to, how to start the conversation. 
Is this a trap? No, no. <laughs> you can make a commitment now if you want. That'd be fine. <laughs> Let me go back to something you said previously, and I think is maybe the better answer to what you said, what you asked earlier about education. Think about, I, you and I, I don't think, grew up necessarily in the seatbelt generation. You know how I learned how to use seatbelts? My children and grandchildren wouldn't let me start that car until they said, buckle up. They call me big buddy. Buckle up, big buddy. You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. And, and that was a, I think smoking is another generational type of educational thing that we, we can do. We've got to start in elementary school with water education now of its preciousness and its finiteness there and ed educate kids in a conservation way. I think each generation is more conservation-minded than the previous generation, but that's, where, that's another idea that really, really helps in that way. So I wanted to make that point because you brought up about children and, mm -hmm. and, and school. Uh, secondly, I think your, your next question has to do with really funding. And uh, I think my perspective is that uh, water is all of our businesses. It's all uh, beneficial to us, whether it be uh, drinking water for municipalities, recreation for the, uh, those uh, fishers and, and for endangered species, those that care about uh, that from the environment, the ecology, and certainly from agricultural perspective. And uh, I think when we come with an issue, when we come with a plan, uh, you have to, I think most reasonable appropriators or people who are gonna make these kind of funding decisions will wanna know really what is the risk What's, what's the calculated risk? Oftentimes, and you remember, uh, we got the chicken little syndrome, the sky's falling, the sky's falling. I'm much more, I'm much more amenable to a, a reasonable presentation. If we do this, this is what's happened bad. If we do this, we can mitigate, and this is what mitigation is gonna cost. And we'd like to do this part, and we'd like to ask you to do this part. I'm a skin in the game kind of guy. And you know, as well as I do now, the federal uh, uh, pocketbook is not unlimited and we've used it for a long time, but neither is the state, neither is local. And uh, we've got to have a combination of all of those because it's all of our business. So I think you've got to come with a plan. You've got to come with a risk. You've got to be reasonable about the risk. Uh, and what are the percentages of, of doing different things? What are the alternatives? Usually more than you know, two or three alternatives, and then a funding plan for what you want to do that makes sense that would mitigate whatever the challenges are that we're facing. That's the way I think most people are able to get money, whether it's from private sector, uh, going to foundations or others to identifying what the challenges are. Uh, we've got an industry that depends on water. You've got a famous industry here that depends on that great Colorado water. And uh, uh, I've got a little company in our state that depends on good quality water called Coca-Cola. Yeah. And so uh, we, uh, we all depend on it for our, our livelihood and our lives, but we forget about sometimes the challenges. But if we come with the threats that are reasonably outlined, I, I, I like to call myself a facts-based, data-based decision maker. Now, there's, you can't remove all the subjectivity, but I think when you come with the best case, that's where you're going to get the best money, whether it's from the endowment of the private sector or whether it's from local, state, or the federal government. You know, folks, that, that, that was a great answer to the question, uh, having also been in that position for a number of years. I, I think if you come in with a reasonable request, 
and you are leveraging existing resources of your own or from other sources, you cannot depend on, on government at any level to be the sole funder. You, you really have to come up with a, a partnership approach and a leverage approach. And the, 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 the importance of data, I think, can't be, uh, it, it just can't be overemphasized. It, that's how you can persuade policymakers. So that was an excellent, uh, excellent answer. And speaking of leverage, we, we've talked recently in, uh, this, this afternoon or this morning about the Regional Conservation Partnership Program, uh, a program that uh, your department administers uh, and one that was established in the 2014 Farm Bill. Uh, I think we, we would all be interested in your take as to whether or not that program has worked from the perspective of USDA and NRCS and whether or not you think Congress uh, supports it and how likely it will be that that program remains is reduced or increased uh, in, the, in the next Farm Bill whenever that may occur. Well, we're hoping it'll be 2018, but you've gone through that as well, haven't you? Uh, we, uh, the Regional Conservation Partnership Program, I think, is a great example of the previous question. Partnerships and leverage, and many times the federal dollars leverage to two or three or more to one, uh, which makes us think there's a skin-in-the-game passion for the challenges that are out there. Not, it's not viewed as just a grant. We want that money to do something. There's a need, and we want it to have impact and, uh, and outcomes there that make sense. You remember, uh, you have one here in the Colorado Basin, or maybe a couple, but uh, you know the Chesapeake Bays use that, mm -hmm. uh, certainly from an agricultural perspective, to teach best practices of nutrient runoff and, and those kinds of issues, how farmers can do better, how we're using better sensor technology, to identify, that's the facts and the data that we need to determine how we're doing. Here, I understand there's a salinity project where we've identified how much salt we're taking out in that way. So you, you need also the evidence of the progress that you're making over these longer term type of prospects because nobody, not even Congress, wants to just throw money at it and then not have any outcomes. And that's very, very important to have the facts and the data. Mm -hmm. Not just we had meetings or we talked about it or discussions, but what are the facts on the ground ecologically that we can identify that that had happened? We've got a challenge, as you all remember, in the Great Lakes uh, Western Bay, uh, Erie, uh, the Western Erie uh, Basin there, mm -hmm. that Toledo, Ohio, they're very shallow part of Lake Erie with algae bloom. And we've got other issues here where the Regional Conservation partnership program is a very effective tool with groups like in the audience today coming together and uh, and there's a there's I think there's a lot of momentum frankly in the whole sustainability culture we see today for our big food producers and food processors retailers and other beverage makers and a lot of people understanding that it's all our responsibility and they and their foundations and they're willing to put money in it but they want to see, just like we do at the federal level, that it's well used and we're getting benefit from it. Good advice. And uh, hopefully Congress uh, will renew that program. I, I, I did not answer that part of the question. Uh, I was asked, uh, and Congress seems to be very favorable to the Regional Conservation Program, partnership, par partnership Program. I know the Great Lakes Senators, the Chesapeake Bay, uh, were very instrumental in, uh, in ensuring that funding went into the omnibus. Uh, here's a little tip. He can't do this, but I can. We need to contact our congressmen and our senators. We need to make sure they understand how important this program is 
and encourage them not only to continue it, but to, but to fund it adequately uh, because it has leveraged resources and I think it is presenting and providing the data and resources that indicate that it's working. So uh, the secretary is constrained from being able to ask you to do that, but I'm not. Uh, I could do it, but I get in trouble. Yeah, okay. that's right. right. I don't want to get you in trouble. I don't want to get you in trouble. Um, Amy, we're going to uh, take questions from the audience, correct? Okay. Uh, so just to give you about a five-minute warning, uh, if you got questions, make sure you write them and uh, get them to Amy, and we'll, uh, we'll try to answer as many of them as we possibly can. Um, I'd be interested in your overview of the state of agriculture generally in the country today. Challenges, opportunities, things you're excited about, things you're concerned about. Secretary Governor Vilsack, you're just a little over a year away from being in this position, and you know it wasn't looking too rosy as you left. We've seen uh, farm prices, farm income drop about 50% over the last five years. Now those were uh, pretty good years prior to that with commodity prices and production. But there's a lot of stress in agriculture today, a lot of stress. And, uh, you know, typically farmers are stressed over what weather, but there are other issues of, besides weather right now, the farm bill being one. Uh, they depend on this safety net to plan for the next year, what their crop and what their programs will be, the investments to make. But then also we've got the recent trade disputes uh, with NAFTA and uh, with China. Not, I don't know a dispute with NAFTA, but the renewal of uh, NAFTA uh, and then the China issue coming up recently. So there's a lot of stress out there. I know you can't uh, really talk to me about uh, your position right now, but dairy, unfortunately, probably is at the tip of the spear regarding the stress. Milk prices are depressed. We have an oversupply and uh, both uh, Mexico has been an important market for us. Uh, we know that Canada's uh, program of supply management, they've not managed the supply very well. Yeah. Uh, they've used this Section 7 type of milk to, uh, to overproduce the milk solids that have reduced our exports. So there's a lot of concern in agriculture. That's why the Farm Bill, with, a, with an appropriate safety net, and I, I don't know how you define it. I, when I speak to farm groups, I said, you know, a safety net's kind of broad, but I think about going to a circus and looking at a trapeze act. You know, we're comfortable with a net under there. We don't want it right up under the wire where there's no thrill, but we don't want it down on the concrete floor where it really hurts somebody, <laughs> you know? So if safety net is an appropriate level, we don't think uh, a, a public safety net and farmers are managing a lot of their risk today with crop insurance, which uh, uh, is the right thing to do. The 14 Farm Bill, I think, made a lot of progress in those kind of, those kind of ways. But it's appropriate to have a safety net. I know you and I view it as a, uh, a national security issue. And uh, certainly, if, if we've seen the turmoil that oil has found in, in uh, our history of fighting over oil, can you imagine what would happen if we didn't have enough food to feed our people here? And that's what can happen if we don't have an ongoing, thriving agricultural community. So it's very important to do that. But right now, uh, while our farmers are, are so, ranchers are so resilient. They just pick up after every being knocked down. Uh, there's a lot of, it's almost droughty out there now with, a, uh, with an emotional stress, wondering when these things are gonna happen. You've got RFS issues being challenged. You've got trade disputes. You got a farm bill on top of the weather and the delayed planning and all those kind of things. So yeah. it's, uh, it's, not a, it's not a happy time necessarily but farmers are, are joyful in their heart about what they do. 
Let me just ask you one more question before we take the, uh, Amy, you can, you can give, me, give me those. And, uh, got a stash yeah, thank you. Um, thanks. Uh, you mentioned crop insurance. Uh, and I think sometimes people have a tendency, and, I, and I've noticed recently comments from members of Congress suggesting that crop insurance should be cut or co crop insurance should be reduced. G explain a little bit why we need crop insurance and what connection it has to this whole sustainability uh, conversation. Well, crop insurance, is, I believe, is an appropriate measure for farmers to, consult, con to uh, control their own risk. There are many risks of farming that many other industries don't have, uh, primarily weather and, and to some degree markets, as we've talked about. But uh, it's very important to give them an opportunity to participate, and they do it, which, which amounts to probably 60% uh, plus of the crop insurance uh, premium is paid by the farmers and producers themselves. They can choose different levels, just like you can for your home or car. And uh, they manage that risk, and I think it makes them, that's, that's the skin in the game that helps them also understand they need to be doing things well, timely, and, and planning for that good crop at a fair price, not for a government program. Uh, I think it was a major step when we got away from direct payments in this country. Uh, you were part of that evolution or revolution, really, that moved away into a, an appropriate risk management type of system in which the producers also uh, participate to a great degree. So I think it's a good balance. I think the public is much more palatable uh, in the fact that uh, the risk management, much of that cost is borne by the producers themselves. Yeah, and without crop insurance, we'd have ad hoc disaster bills, which would be right. even more expensive. Uh, a couple of great questions. Uh, let me start with this one, which I think is, is important. Given the, the aging nature of the American farm population, this question is, uh, could you say something to the younger generation? Uh, if you could, what would you say to the younger generation? Well, we do. We say it all the time. I, last night I was at a uh, state FFA convention, about four to 5,000 young kids, and uh, that'll really get you inspired if you have some pessimism about uh, the state of youth or the state of agriculture. There's some... Uh, there's some bright kids out there in 4-H and FFA and other places that have a real heart. What we're seeing in a fascinating sort of way is almost a resurgence of the millennials and that spiritual aspect of getting their hands back in the dirt. We're seeing it in the farm to food, the farm to table movement. Actually in the Northeast, the number of farms are increasing, which was an interesting statistic for me. Mm -hmm. uh, many times we see farms consolidating out in the rest of the heartland. But in the Northeast, they're growing by the number. And we see a lot of millennials in a lot of different ways, not necessarily traditional agriculture because traditional agriculture is, has a high capital barrier of entry. And whether you inherit it or have a, win the lottery or whatever, agriculture is difficult to get in in a traditional concept. I remember back when I was a child on our family's farm, uh, a couple could... Uh, probably send a couple of kids to college on probably 300 acres. Now it's probably 1,500 to 2,000 acres to support a normal sized family in that area. So while we become more productive, that, that uh, our income per acre has gone down and we see farms consolidate. Mm -hmm. So, but there are a lot of different things. We've seen some wonderful uh, greenhouse type operations uh, going on. And it's just uh, uh, throughout uh, 
in the Northeast, through the Midwest, and through many places. And so we're gonna see a lot of technology. This whole issue of precision agriculture is pretty important. The young people are driving these kind of things, the connectivity. That's why, again, broadband is so, uh, across rural areas is so important. And the, there are things on the, on the shelf that we could use today to help conserve water and uh, whether it's sensor technology, irrigations or others, but the young people will be the ones that are driving that. Right. And I, I encourage all of them not only to, uh, to look at production agriculture, but ag communications because we've got to tell the great story too. As we get competitive here over water rights and other things, the public has to understand what the cost benefit is for agriculture and it's very important. And young people with their skills and social media can do that better than we can many times. You know, you, we've, we've talked about some of, the, some of the threats that agriculture faces. Uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, steps that need to be taken in your view uh, to address and prepare for a biosecurity threat to our agricultural crops. Well, we don't like to think about that either, but uh, we must prepare. And uh, you're aware that there's a major facility being constructed at Kansas State. It's called InBath. It's the National Bioterra Facility. Initially, it was put under Department of Homeland Security because they thought they would be the ones that were, uh, would be faced with agro-terrorism. Uh, Congress this year in the, in the uh, Farm Bill is looking at transferring that to the Department of Agriculture. You understand what resources we have in Agricultural Research Service and, that, uh, and NIFA that coordinate with universities like Colorado State, our land-grant universities, and the core competency they have over those uh, uh, zoonoses, uh, uh, international uh, threats like foot and mouth disease that could decimate even the fear of that. Just recently, we've seen the romaine lettuce there mm -hmm. and the fear that of an unsafe food supply that can create, whether it's perceived or real, it happens and it's devastating to not only that economy or that product, but the community at large, retailers and the whole, whole supply chain. So we're, uh, uh, USDA will be working with Kansas State in coordination and Department of Homeland Security with a level four biosecurity facility there. It'll be ramped up probably in a couple, two to three years and uh, cutting line, cutting uh, area research over those critical uh, international diseases that we have to be on the, on the forefront of. You just took a, a step uh, which I thought was a, a, a positive one in terms of our uh, accelerating our research on foot and mouth. Uh, I think you uh, authorized uh, the release of, of non-toxic, non maybe that's not the right word, foot non -live, and mouth. Non-live vaccine. Yeah, online yeah. vaccine so that we could basically create yeah. a much larger stockpile of vaccines. And so it's obvious that you uh, personally and the department are, are focused on this. Um, Senator Bennett men mentioned this and, and gave you um, kudos for the work that you did in uh, getting our forest uh, budget situation straightened out. Uh, talk to me a little bit about how you see next steps now that uh, the department isn't going to have to rob Peter to pay Paul to put right. fires out. As I told Senator Bennett this morning, he was overly kind. It was a real effort, a real bipartisan effort uh, in members of Congress, bicameral and bipartisan, and uh, something that the Forest Service had been trying to get for a number of years. The problem had been uh, uh, the firefighting budget was stable 
and we were having to borrow money from operational costs. That's all the forest management uh, money that the Forest Service was given in order to fight fires. And this was depleting what we need to do. In, in Georgia, Secretary, we call that eating your seed corn. We were having to spend money to uh, at the end of the stream where we need to be spending on the front end. This bill is tremendous. And not only did it give us the, the fire funding fix of not having to borrow, but it gave us forest management authorities that can do what we need to do to stop the forest land wildfires. And that's gonna be critical. As you well know, there's a fuel load out there on the ground. And when it starts, it, it's what happens last year with the wildland fires, they're just explosive. Colorado obviously has had its share. Last year was not that bad here, but in previous years, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's had some serious wildland fires. So hopefully we can, the ball is in our court and I've challenged the Forest Service with more boots on the ground to get out there and reduce the fuel load. It also means a great deal for the economies. Uh, some of those economies or communities were decimated when that natural renewable resource was taken away from them through litigation or other things that stopped the production of timber coming through those local sawmills, a lot of jobs, a lot of supporting a lot of jobs. And that's what we got to rebuild that old ecosystem throughout the West with so many acres. The other thing about the Forest Service is we didn't talk about its relationship to the water. Uh, our guys have predicted that the, that the forest lands of this country belong to the, to the citizens here in the U.S. Forest Service. About 50% of the water in the West that's utilized falls on those lands. So when you have a wildland fire, guess what happens? It just, uh, it, it just terrible. And so we need those forests to be healthy. There's nothing better for, for, for water restoration, water conservation than a good, healthy forest. So those two work together. We've got NRCS, our Natural Resources Conservation Service, and the Forest Service in USDA that have critical equities in the preservation and the conservation of water. Mm -hmm. This is a, a, a question folks are interested in your views and thoughts on the current status of the farm bill. I used to refer to it as the food farm bill because it's much more than a farm bill. But where do you think it is? What do you think is going to happen? What are your What's your take on on uh, what the House has proposed? As you know, typically the uh, the farm bill is one of the more bipartisan bills in Congress ever deals with. In fact, the good thing about this job, Secretary, as you know, it's probably the department is that is least partisan of any there, and that's that's the great part about the job is that. There's not a lot of ideology. I kind of look at the USDA as having 100,000 plus of farm kids just like ag, you know, and that, that makes the job very pleasant. So typically the farm bill has, uh, has been the most bipartisan cooperative bill, and we think that will happen at the end of the day. The House passed their version of the farm bill based on uh, a partisan party line vote, uh, which I think at the end of the day that people will come together. That party line vote was based on some requirements that the Republicans felt like there should be some work requirements in the supplemental nutrition bill. As the secretary knows, they call it the farm bill, but it's not really the food bill to a large degree and that uh, over $70 billion goes to the supplemental nutrition program, the food stamp bill, and uh, just a, a portion of that, uh, uh, a much a fraction of that goes to the farm program bill. But that was the real hiccup there. 
But the good news is the president has got engaged, understanding with the anxieties over the trade dispute and has given the word that he wants a farm bill this year and he wants his team throughout the West Wing and the White House to work with Congress to get a farm bill uh, through this year. You know how frustrating those extensions are it, administratively and for your customers of farmers. It's just like trying to plan when you don't know what the rules are gonna be and it's extremely frustrating both internally and externally for everyone who has to use the farm bill. So we're very hopeful and frankly, I'm, uh, after this week, I'm optimistic that we'll get a farm bill. You also have uh, a, a tool that I didn't have the chance to utilize and that's the Commodity Credit Corporation mm -hmm. and, and you have greater flexibility in the use of that. Uh, and I know that, uh, that your, your team's looking at that as well in the event that we have some negative pushback as a result of some of the trade discussions. That's exactly right. We don't know of any farmer that, rather not have, that had rather not have trade than aid. Yeah. They'd rather have a, 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 a good fair price for a good crop than any kind of government check. But I went to Congress back in the fall knowing that your hands have been cuffed over using this, uh, this authority and explained to them that if we do, we've begun trade discussions about potential potentialities there. The sad part is you will know that agriculture is always at the point of the spear uh, on any kind of retaliation. And that's what we see happening today. So I went to members of Congress on both sides and I said, uh, uh, when you redo the appropriations bill, how about getting the handcuff key and taking these off? Because if we need to do something in the form of mitigation for our farmers, you're going to be coming to me saying, let's do something, and I won't have the ability to do it. So fortunately, they understood that, and I promised them certainly, and as you would have, to consult with them prior to any kind of program we would develop. But we, we felt compelled to develop ahead of time. It's not appropriate or really prudent to talk about the tools that you would use or what levels. The press wants to know about that a lot. But uh, let me just tell you, we've worked on it for several months over mitigation strategies in case that uh, there is a trade dispute that's unresolvable. Uh, this is a good question. In the context of the water center, uh, there's an education component and, and uh, obviously, it's, as I mentioned earlier, some of it's going to be directed at our, our young, young children and our, and our high school, middle school uh, kids. If you had a couple of high school kids here, a couple of middle school kids, what would be the message that you would convey to them about water so that when they left, they would be impressed to be thinking differently about water? I'd probably ask two smart young people if they could develop a water app that taught all their kids about water wars. They'd have water, all these wars they fight on these video games. Do a, <laughs> do a video game about water wars and, uh, and, and make that and, and let that go ubiquitous like Fortnite or whatever it is they're, they're playing now. But uh, that may not be a bad idea actually. That's a, that's about, a good uh, idea. <laughs> I think you're onto something. <laughs> but, but again, I think uh, educational centers and uh, how they can be... Uh, really water ambassadors because it, it's really hard. It's like I said, we don't think about 911 until that chest pain hits or that car crash comes. We just, we take it for granted. And that's the problem with water is we take it for granted. How do we get the attention of people that, uh, that do take it for granted, which is most everyone, me included, uh, when, uh, when we need to make plans of how we can do better? I do believe that's a generational. I think probably some of the things that I could foresee uh, 
being willing to help participate funding would be uh, really educational programs for kids in school, uh, whether it's uh, uh, programs there or a curricula uh, that can help them understand where water comes from, the whole flow of water, where it goes. We did a center in Georgia while I was governor called the Go Fish Center, but most of it's really dedicated to conservation. It talks about how, war, how important water is and watersheds and how water flows. Many people don't even know what a watershed is. Right. And so I think a curricula in, in elementary or middle school or high school could be a great, a great start there to make sure kids understand uh, the, about water. Uh, th this is an interesting question, and, and there's been a lot of conversation about the fact that part of the answer to our dilemma here is more storage. And obviously when you deal with storage, you deal with a lot of regulations, a lot of, a, a lot of different federal agencies. What's your advice in terms of, of, or what's your view about whether or not the regulatory process can be streamlined, changed, modified in a way that it doesn't take decades to get approval for, for projects? Well, I hope the good news is that on the President's infrastructure vision, he has a permitting paradigm or shift really Secretary, that talks about a very compressed uh, uh, permitting process with a lead agent. He's calling it one federal decision. And uh, the uh, head of the Corps of Engineers, and uh, he's been over to the offices there, we've met over just things like 404 permits, where NRCS has a responsibility, but like the Corps of Engineers could always trump that. Mm -hmm. They had the core trump card they could throw out there and just scrambled everything else. So what we're trying to do as an administration is make more contemporary, uh, contemporaneous uh, uh, agreements so it doesn't take so long. As you remember, one agency would do this, they would kick it over to the other, they'd take two years, the other one take here. And we, we see some projects that are 10, 15, and 20 years in the making over the needed. We can't afford that kind of time. So the one federal decision would allow a lead agency, whether it's DOT, or USDA or whatever, to hold those other agencies accountable in an ongoing process with a goal of having these decisions down to under 24 months. That's very, very aggressive and optimistic, but you don't, you're not gonna get there if you don't start. So that's one of the things we're trying to do. The other thing, I'm uh, developing an ongoing relationship with the Corps of Engineer and to, to understand how we can really uh, work together better in that regard, as well as EPA that also has uh, uh, equities in that. Well, I, I wish you the best of luck in dealing with the Corps of Engineers, <laughs> the EPA, you, uh, and, and OMB. Um, you, uh, you well know, as most of us <laughs> do, and the president, we got his, we got the president's attention. We indicated the Corps, if he, if he had a 24-month permitting process, he better have some direction for the core because that, uh, that's exactly right. But Absolutely. A, there, it's, it's interesting. There's a Mississippi fellow named R.D. James who's uh, been in the agriculture business who's heading up the Corps of Engineers now. So well, maybe we got hope. Good. Well, that's great. That's great. Um, you know, obviously there is this issue of urban and rural. And, and obviously sometimes uh, there's a divide between the, between the two. Uh, as we kind of wrap up here, uh, give us your wisdom in terms of how we, uh, through a water center, through this collaborative effort that we've started here, how, how can we 
bridge that divide? What, what advice would you give us in terms of bridging that divide? That's a great question to finish on. We face the exact same thing in Georgia. The Flint River and the Chattahoochee River flow into southwest Georgia, which is our quadrant of our most fertile and productive farmland in Georgia. And uh, the same rivers that serve that area through irrigation and through underwater aquifers uh, also served Atlanta with their drinking water. So there was a lot of blame back and forth, but nothing was produced by blame and acrimony. It was only when we began to cooperate and understand that we had a popular, growing population that was an economic engine, clearly, of Georgia, the, the capital of the South, we like to call it, that, that was helpful for all of our economies. But also in Atlanta, I had to persuade them that the fertile fields and farms of Southwest Georgia also contributed to their livelihood uh, in that way as well. We'll never get anywhere if we continue to battle. They're also, they're always competing in, in, uh, interests there. But in water, we've got to learn how to play fair and square in, in that way. Typically, it, it won't need, you, you need the protocols in the droughtiest of times because that's when the real challenges come. Most everyone can get along as long as there's adequate water. When there's not adequate water, that's when the challenges come. But those relationships have to be built in those times, in the good times, so they can sustain through those tough emotional times. And there's an uh, ag reporter by the name of Oren Samuelson who's been doing radio ad, ag radio for 50 plus years. At the end of each year, he comes to the secretary's office and, and does an interview with you. I'm sure you've done this. And at the end of it, he says, you get the last minute yeah. before secretary says. Yeah. So I'm going to give you the last minute, secretary. <laughs> Whatever you well, would like to share. Orion did pull that on me. He said, "You've got to do my interview." Secretary Vilsack did it for eight years, so uh, <laughs> that, that's what uh, that's what he did on me, and I did do it. But uh, certainly, uh, I want to again end like we began, applauding uh, Colorado State, applauding you, Secretary Vilsack, and applauding all of you who have taken the time out of your day to come and discuss an issue that is extremely important. Maybe not necessarily as urgent is some other issues in your life right now, but probably as important, maybe more important than we could ever imagine for the future of, of the state, whether it's population growth and certainly with its ag interest and, and, and to the economy. So understand there are no easy answers, but uh, we're not gonna get there if we don't buckle up and, and create centers like this, create collaboration. Obviously water knows no uh, state boundaries, no local boundaries. And we've got, to we've got to look at this from a regional watershed area. I know that you all are doing that in the Colorado Basin, seven states, but it's important to continue to do that. And frankly, just to be good neighbors and learn how to share. Uh, that's what I would say. Very good. Well, please join me in thanking Secretary Thank Perdue. You.